My name is Justin Baker, and I'm a part of the worship team here. And you're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. We're working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. Glad that you're here. If you don't know me, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors. Um, we are a little bit scattered this morning from a staff standpoint. Two of our staff members, thank you, Jacob. Two of our staff members are down in the Dominican Republic on a mission trip with some of our students. They are working down there with Grace City Church in Santo Domingo. Yeah, you can clap. That's good. We're rejoicing. It's awesome. Um, The reports that we're getting back from that are great and very encouraging. Uh, So thankful for your prayers in that. They come back Tuesday, Tuesday. Um, And so if you would continue to pray for that team, but um, even more so for Grace City Church, Santo Domingo. Uh, We are a part of a church planting network called Summit Collaborative, and Grace City is a part of that. Um, Pastor Manuel uh, was sent down there from a church in Atlanta. He's kind of going home to plant. Uh, but they, he and his family have worshipped with us here on a Sunday morning. Some of you all may have met him um, back. Uh, they've been here a couple, two or three times, I think. So some of you all may know Pastor Manuel. But uh, we want to continually pray for the work that God is doing, not only at King's Cross, but also more broadly in the kingdom. We're aware that we are just one little outpost. We are not the only church that preaches the gospel um, in our city, much less around the world. And so we're thankful anytime we see God working anywhere uh, in his kingdom, and it's our joy to be a part of that. And when you give, you are helping um, link arms with us to fuel some of that. Um, Some of what you give goes to uh, other church plants that we partner with here in the city. Um, There is uh, Harbor City Church over in West Ashley is a church that we support financially. It's also part of Summit Collaborative. Some of what you give goes to help equip um, students in our student ministry. Our new budget that we passed last week um, includes, uh, if things go right, um, about a double of our student ministry budget has about doubled in the new budget. Um, So we are excited about that. Some of what you give just helps go to facilitate what you experience here on Sunday morning. And so um, I hope that you see yourself as part of something greater than just your own personal experience here on Sunday morning or even just our collective experience as a faith family together at King's Cross, but that you see what you give as being a part of what it is that God is doing uh, around the world. So if you'd like to do that, we tell you this every week. You can give online at kingscross.org. You can give in the box in the back there uh, in between the doors, or you can use the Church Center app, or you can text to give. We don't take those for granted, and we consider a very high level of stewardship to be our responsibility for those. And so if you have any questions about budgets or giving or anything like that, just grab me and let's talk and make sure that you feel comfortable with our processes there. But for now, let's pray and ask God for his help as we turn to his word. Father, we're thankful to be gathered here together as friends, as a faith family, as your children. Thankful to be a part of what it is that you are doing, not only here and in our city, in our country, but around the world. And I pray that we have a sense of being a part of your story, that you've been 
riding across all of human history. We look forward to the day when the fullness of that story is seen, that our faith becomes sight. But between this day and that one, we pray that you would just make us faithful. There'll be a people who who think about your kingdom, a people who give generously towards your kingdom work, a church that does the same. Would you tether us to one another and uh, to you for the sake of your great name and because of your great gospel? It's in that name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, Tuesday morning, I got in my car, uh, I turned it on, and a little screen there in the middle of my dashboard throws up this message that I hadn't seen before, which is unusual because I get a lot of messages on that little screen. Uh, my car's a little older, but this is, what the, <laughs> this is what the message said. Engine operating at reduced output, which is not good. Possible to continue, which is encouraging. Uh, drive with caution. Have the system checked by the nearest Mini dealer. I drive a 2012 Mini. Now, I didn't need that last sentence. Right? Have the system checked by the nearest Mini center. As soon as there was a warning that there was a problem, me making the leap to go to a, some source of help other than me was not a caution I needed. I knew that was something that was going to have to be done. Once there was a problem with the car, there's a couple of things around the house if there's a problem with, I, I can step in. But a, a car engine is not, uh, is not on the list. I knew I needed a source of help other than me. Last week, as we gathered together and we were considering together this year-long journey through the Bible that we're taking, we said that the book of First and Second Kings were written about 350 years after Israel's high water mark, and they were written as kind of a diagnostic looking back, but also this warning message moving forward. This once proud people, this once great nation had experienced 350 years of military and economic and religious decline. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple had been destroyed. And there was a remnant that was looking back on the good old days and saying, how did we get here? What we said was that the book of Kings was the answer. It wasn't just a warning light on Israel's national dashboard, though, if you will, it also included that last line. It includes the source of help. And it tells people where they could have or should have looked to get help. What we said last week was that the tragedy of King Solomon's divided heart was kind of a dashboard warning light for us, too. Not to let our hearts become divided, but rather to set them wholly on the Lord. This week, we're going to continue in First and Second Kings, but we're going to turn from the warning to the source of help. We're going to turn this morning from Israel's kings to its prophets. Now, sometimes if you say the word prophet, people think of different things. So just so we're all on the same page... When I say prophet, I'm talking about it in the Old Testament sense. The prophets in the Old Testament were chosen by God 
to occupy the office of prophet, the primary duty of which was to speak the word of God in an official capacity to uh, the people, to kings, to you know, different places and people that God had sent them to. So the first of the Old Testament prophets was Moses. The last was John the Baptist. They said, well, I think John the Baptist is in the New Testament. That's true. But he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. The prophet's role was to stand before kings or before all of the people and basically to say to them, hear the word of the Lord. They are speaking the words of God on behalf of God quite often to God's people. We meet two of them this morning, Elijah and Elisha, and they are massively influential. There are other prophets, other sons of prophets, even other false prophets that are mentioned in 1 and 2 Kings, but Elijah and Elisha drive the narrative. If Israel, the northern kingdom, after the kingdom of Israel had divided, and Judah, the southern kingdom, if their kings had only had the wisdom to heed the warning lights on the dashboard of their lives and of their nation, the word of the Lord spoken through the prophets of the Lord would have been a source of help. So too, if you and I have the humility and the wisdom to heed the warning lights that God puts in our lives, then the word of the Lord spoken through Elijah and Elisha can still be a source of help for us as well. And there are two primary themes that run all the way through the lives of these two great men of God. One primary theme in each life, we're going to take them in order this morning. The first one is this, and it comes from the life of Elijah. It is that my God is the Lord. It's the first note in your sermon notes if you like to follow along with that. When you see LORD in all caps, if you have your Bible open or your Bible app on and you're reading that, that is the covenant name of God. Often Yahweh is the way that we would say it. The people of Israel didn't like to say that out loud. They felt like it was disrespectful. And so often in our English translations, when, when you see LORD in all caps, that's the covenant name of God. My God is the Lord. This is what Elijah's name means literally. His name is El, meaning God. I, which modifies it and makes it possessive. It makes it my God. Yah, meaning it's short for Yahweh. So my God is Yahweh, is literally Elijah's name. In our modern English, my God is the Lord. Now, Elijah lives in... Israel, the northern kingdom, after the nation had divided, he lives under the worst of Israel's 19 kings, a man named Ahab. King Ahab had married a pagan queen named Jezebel. He facilitated and participated in pagan worship, and he angered the Lord more than all of his predecessors, which is saying a lot. He is the worst of the worst of the kings of the northern kingdom. And Elijah's name itself, my God is Yahweh, it, it throws down a gauntlet 
in Ahab's kingdom. His name itself is a confrontation before the king. And his entire life is going to be a testimony to the truth of his name. My God is the Lord. It's going to be a testimony to Israel and to Judah. And if we have ears to hear, to you and I as well. We see it in 1 Kings 17, where Yahweh shows himself to be the God over life and death. It's the first way that we see this theme playing out, that my God is the Lord over life and death. As chapter 17 opens, Elijah's first act is to predict a drought. 1 Kings 17.1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab the king, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now Ahab worshipped Baal, the Canaanite god of fertility. His coming and going in the minds of the Canaanites was closely associated with the cycles of rain and drought. So every now and then, Baal had to go off and kind of die as a sacrifice to other gods, and then he would be reborn when the rains came again. Living in an agrarian desert society, whoever controls the rain controls life and death because the rain is the source of life. But Elijah's God didn't die every year when spring and fall came. Elijah's God was alive. Elijah's God, Yahweh, is about to prove that he has the power over the life and death of the nation by showing that he has the power not just over rain, but even over the dew. He's pulling the water out of the very air itself. In verses 5 through 7, we see that God has the power over life and death, not just for the nation and the kingdom as a whole, but also for an individual. He sustains Elijah's life by the brook Kareth, by sending ravens to drop bread and meat to Elijah as he encamps there. In verses 8 to 16, Elijah encounters a widow who is gathering sticks to cook one last biscuit before she and her son starve to death. 1 Kings 17, 14 to 16 says this, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she, the widow, went and did as Elijah said. And she and he, her son, and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. The tragedy strikes if you're reading along in your devotional plan this week and the son dies anyway, gets sick. Verses 17 to 24, the widow cries out to Elijah and Elijah cries out to God. Verse 22 says, the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. My God is the Lord over life and death for kingdoms and individuals, kings and widows, prophets and children. The Lord of life 
and death. We see this theme played out again in chapter 18. In the first half, verses 1 to 19, Yahweh has proven to be the God over kings and kingdoms. Over kings and kingdoms. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says, After many days the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. It's been three years without rain. And he says to Elijah, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. Elijah goes. He finds Ahab's servant, Obadiah. Obadiah is shook. They have been hunting for Ahab and for water for three years. Obadiah tells Elijah in verse 10, As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord, King Ahab, has not sent to seek you. And when they would say, he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or the nation that they had not found you. Ahab had searched and threatened every kingdom and every nation that he could get to, trying to hunt down this man, Elijah, who had stopped the rain. He hasn't been able to find him yet. And evidently, things had gotten so bad that even Ahab, is out trying to search for a spring or a well or some source of water. Do you understand how bad the drought has to be for the king to be a part of the search party? Elijah sends for Ahab. Sends for Ahab. He doesn't say to Obadiah, oh, take me to the king and I will speak to him. He says to Obadiah, well, here I am. If your king wants to talk to me, go get him. And you you can bring him here. Ahab comes. We read this in verses 17 to 19. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. So he confronts the king. And then he commands the king, verse 19. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. He basically says to Ahab, I am the prophet of God and I speak the word of God and my God is the Lord over kings and kingdoms and you, O king, you and your kingdom will obey. You go do what I tell you to do. See it on display again in 1 Kings 18, the second half of the chapter. Verses 20 to 40, we see Yahweh's supremacy on display over all false gods. Over all false gods. Might be my favorite story in the Old Testament. It kills me to skim over this quickly. One day we might go back and do a sermon series on just the life of Elijah, which would be awesome. But if you haven't read 1 Kings 18, please go read it this afternoon. It is awesome. Ahab does as he's told, goes and gathers these prophets, 1 Kings 18, 20. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long, this is the prophet of God speaking to the alleged people of God, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. 
But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. It may be the only reason God has some of you here this morning is to just hear that verse. How long are you going to go limping between two opinions? If God is the Lord, then follow him. And if he's not, stop wasting your time playing church. It's basically what Elijah says. What follows is, I, I can't believe they haven't made a movie out of it yet. Ahab summons 450 prophets of Baal. Again, the Canaanite god of fertility. He is associated with, in their minds, rain, thunderstorms, lightning, uh, children, sexual activity. These are the things bound up in Baal. And Elijah sets up a showdown. He says, I tell you what we'll do. We're going to get two bulls. You prepare an altar and your bull for a sacrifice. I'm going to prepare an altar and my bull for a sacrifice. Verse 24, you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, oh, this is well spoken. You know why? Because fire from heaven, that's Baal's thing. Well, this is no problem. I mean, he picked the thing that our God's a specialty of. This is going to be great. Prophets of Baal go first. They call on Baal from morning till noon. Nothing happens. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself, which means exactly what it sounds like. Maybe your God is in the bathroom. We should just wait until he wraps things up. Or maybe he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. Maybe you should make more noise. And so that's what they do. <clears throat> they keep on from morning till evening. They chant, they dance. The scripture says they start to cut themselves Trying to get Baal's attention, does he not see that his prophets are bleeding out? Nothing happens. Now it's Elijah's turn. Now Elijah repairs what used to be an altar to the Lord, an altar to Yahweh. But under King Ahab, it had been torn down. He rebuilds it. He rebuilds it with 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes of Israel being very intentional. He prepares the bull and he digs a trench around the altar and he tells the people to pour water on it lest there be any mistake about the source of what's about to happen. They do and then he says, I tell you what, why don't you pour some more water on it? So they do and then he says, I tell you what, why don't you do it a third time? They pour so much water around on it that the trench around it becomes a moat. Verses 36 to 40. Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. See, his, his burden is for the people. 
Right? It's not for his own reputation. He is hurting that the people of Israel have turned from their God. Bring, won't you bring your people back? Remind them who you are. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Not, not one of them escaped. There's 450 of them. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. My God is the Lord over all false gods. One more time we see this theme that Yahweh is God. In the life of Elijah, in 1 Kings 19, we see that Yahweh is God over my life. It's God over my life. After the prophets of Baal are defeated, God sends rain. This is perhaps the greatest victory in the life of Elijah. He has stared down the greatest spiritual challenge he's ever going to encounter. He has come out of it on top. He has been vindicated. The prophets of Baal slaughtered. Rain has come. But Ahab's wife Jezebel starts to hunt him down. Chapter 19 finds Elijah spiritually drained, physically exhausted, and alone. And he is sliding into what can only be described as a depression. He literally prays for God to kill him in verse 4. And then he says to God in verse 10, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah is at the end of his rope. And God tells him to rest and to eat. And then he speaks to him, according to verse 12, in the sound of a low whisper. Elijah had had enough noise. He'd had enough busyness and commotion to last a lifetime. He'd had enough fire from the sky. He was exhausted. And God met him where he was. In the verses that follow, God sends him home, reminds him he's not alone, and tells him to whom he is about to pass the baton. He basically says, your ministry is done. It's time for somebody else to take over. Good job. Don't listen when people tell you that the God of the Old Testament is angry and vengeful and very different than the God of the New Testament. This is personal, intimate, gentle, shepherd-like love from God the Father to his servant Elijah. And it's a reminder that my God is the Lord over my life. 
He didn't just need to use Elijah. He was ministering to Elijah. Here's my question for you. Where do you need to be reminded that your God is the Lord? Where do you need to be strengthened, encouraged, emboldened perhaps, comforted? Where do you find that your tanks are running low, that your fears are running high, that your eyes and your head just keep dropping? Is there a place you're worried that he doesn't care? Where you are anxious, he won't come through. A place where maybe you feel like you're all alone. And it's just you. Maybe where you're wondering whether any of this is true. Maybe where you're tempted to just walk away. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Your God is the Lord. He is the Lord over life and death, over kings and kingdoms, over all false gods and false systems and false teachers and movements that will try to tell you that there's a better way, that there's another way than Jesus and his gospel. Your God is the Lord of your life. He sees you. You are not alone. The second theme in the life of these prophets comes from the life of Elisha. And it's this, that my God saves. This is just what Elisha's name means. Ale, God, I, makes it possessive, my God, Shah, saves. My God saves. Elisha is called to follow Elijah at the end of 1 Kings 19. Kind of becomes his apprentice. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah is taken up to heaven. He, by the way, is one of only two people in the Bible that doesn't die. So that's a blessing. He's just taken up to heaven. And Elisha succeeds him, not as the only, but as the primary prophet in Israel. And just like Elijah's name set the theme for his life and for the primary message that God was going to use his life to communicate to the people and to the king, so too with Elisha. Elisha's life is going to be a testimony to the saving power of his God. We see it in 2 Kings 4, where God demonstrates that he sometimes saves in miraculous ways. Sometimes saves in miraculous ways. There's a miracle there. It's very similar to the one at the beginning of Elijah's ministry. Elisha encounters a widow in 2 Kings 4, 1-7, whose sons are about ready to be sold into slavery to cover her debt. And God miraculously fills. He tells her, like, go to all your neighbors and get their empty pots. 
And when she brings them in, God miraculously fills empty vessel after empty vessel after empty vessel with oil so that she can sell them and save her sons in verse 7. Verses 8 to 37, Elisha's ministry is further validated, as was Elijah's before him, when he miraculously raises a widow's son from the dead. And then in verses 38 to 44, Elisha is sitting with the sons of the prophets. It's kind of like prophet school. And they are all eating this stew that was accidentally poisoned when one of the guys, he's probably like the new intern guy, had gone out to add some flavor to the stew, but the herbs that he got were actually poisonous. And so it's an accident, but now they're all eating this poison stew. And Elisha miraculously heals the stew, prevents their death, and they have uh, the, the pot of stew multiplies. They have enough to feed 100 men. Sometimes, my God saves in miraculous ways. Now, miracles are a weird thing in the Bible because they get a lot of the press, but they actually don't take up that much space. Like most of the Bible's not miracles. Most of Jesus' ministry, if you read through the Gospels, is not, it's not just like page after page after page of miracles. There, there are miracles interspersed, but, but they don't actually make up most of the time. But nonetheless, my God does sometimes save in miraculous ways. And usually what you find is he's validating the ministry of those who are called by him to advance his mission into new frontiers. But this happens this still happens today. God saves in miraculous ways. In 2 Kings 5, we see that sometimes God saves in unexpected ways. In unexpected ways. In chapter 5, we find the story of Naaman. Verse 1 says of Naaman that he was a commander of the army of the king of Syria. So he's a Gentile. He was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but... He was a leper. Now Naaman has this servant girl that's in his service. And she's an Israelite. She was captured when Syria conquered um, or won this battle over Israel. And so now she's a slave. She's kind of serving in, serving in Naaman's house. But she's got an awesome heart. And what she says to Naaman is, man, it's too bad that you're not in Israel. Because if you were in Israel, there's a man of God. He could take this whole leprosy thing away. So Naaman goes to him. Long story short, Elisha sends word to him in 2 Kings 5, 10, and 11. It says, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold. I thought he would surely come out to me. Elisha didn't even bother to go speak to Naaman. He just sent a message. I thought he would come out to me and surely stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. See, this is the way that when I came here, I had this idea of the way that this was going to go down. It's not going down that way. And so he's angry and he turns to go home. Now his guys stop him and they basically say, hey, Naaman, we came this far. Why don't we just give it a shot? Let's just see. Right, who knows? Maybe it'll work. If nothing else, we can swim in the river for a while, be refreshed. All right, I made that part up, but that's probably what they said. 
So he does. And in verse 14, he's healed. But not in the way he expected. The way God worked in his life was just different than the way he thought. And sometimes God saves in unexpected ways. In 2 Kings 6, we learn that God can save in unseen ways. Sometimes you don't even see it. King of Syria was making war on Israel in verses 8 to 23, but Elisha was advising the king of Israel, and Elisha would get a word from the Lord. He'd say to the king, uh, hey, Syria's coming. Let's go over there. And so Elisha is kind of uh, strategically helping the king avoid this coming conflict. So what happens is the Syrian king gets wind of this, and he goes after Elisha. He surrounds the city where Elisha is staying, and uh, Elisha's servant rushes out to him to tell him that, hey, uh, the city's totally surrounded, and we're doomed because there's this army outside, and the servant's freaking out. And Elisha says, uh, calm down. It's going to be okay. 2 Kings 6, 16 to 17. Do not be afraid. It's Elisha speaking to his servant. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha prayed. And he said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. See, Elisha knew what men and women of God have always known. That the spiritual realm is real. Spiritual warfare is real. That the Spirit of God is real. That there are a hundred million things going on all the time that can't be perceived by our five senses. But just because we can't always wrap our head around that doesn't mean they're less real. Sometimes God saves in unseen ways. I mean, you can't see love or gravity or magnetic fields. You can't see grief or repentance. You can't see when God, as someone turns to him in faith, takes a heart of stone and turns it into a heart of flesh. All you see of those things is their effects. You, you see the result of them. In verse 23, the unseen God had saved Elisha and Israel, and it says the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. Do you know that after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his apostles, and one of them, Thomas, who did awesome things and gets labeled with this unfortunate nickname, Doubting Thomas. You know, I think when we all get to eternity and we meet Thomas, like, it says there will be no... Tears. I just wonder, like, does Thomas get to hold on to just a little bit of like, I know, with the whole doubting. One, I had one moment. One, one moment. Right? Anyway, Thomas, t Thomas says, uh, you know, is it really you? And so Jesus shows him the scars on his body. Uh, and Thomas believes. And Jesus says to him in John 20, 29, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. My God saves in unseen ways. And finally, in 2 Kings 7, we're reminded that sometimes God saves in unbelievable ways. 
unbelievable ways. Chapter 7, Samaria is besieged. The people are starving. Elisha is told of a woman who boiled and ate her own child. You know how hungry you have to be. The word of the Lord comes to Elisha and he says in 2 Kings 7, 1 and 2, Hear, Elisha says, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow at about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? The captain says, there's no way. <laughs> if, if God opened up the windows, like that, is, that cannot happen. That is unbelievable. But Elisha said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And the captain's going to die, actually. Elisha was right. Verses 6 and 7. The Lord made the armies of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses and the sound of a great army so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was. And they fled for their lives. Down in verse 16, the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seas of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. That's unbelievable. There's no way it could happen. But my God saves in unbelievable ways. Some of you struggle with faith because you want it all to make sense. And I think that's natural. I think that's normal. We want to understand the things that are a part of our life. But could I just suggest to you that if every miracle can be logically explained away by the modern human mind, if God never does anything or asks you to do anything in your life that is unexpected to you, if everything that comes to you from God, you're like, yep, saw that coming. If, if you only believe what you see, hear, or experience, it, if in order for you to believe in God and in his son Jesus, in order for you to believe in a new heaven and a new earth, you have to be able to wrap your head around the how and the why of everything that God does or says, then the God that you worship is a projection of your own mind. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of history. That's not the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. That is not the God of Elisha. That is not my God. Because my God saves whom he will when he will, how he will. Sometimes in miraculous ways, sometimes in unexpected ways, often in unseen ways, and always in unbelievable ways. Because the most unbelievable, unexpected, miraculous truth in all the universe is that God would reveal himself at all. Much less that he would save a rebellious, sinful, broken mess like me. For you, 
But that's what he did. Jesus said of John the Baptist that he had come in the power of Elijah. John comes on the scene. He's very short-lived. He basically announces the ministry of Jesus, passes the baton to him, and he's gone. John was just a forerunner. And that means if you follow the pattern that Jesus came in the power of Elisha, the God who saves. Jesus takes the role of the one who brings salvation to scared widows and dying sons and wayward soldiers and sick leaders and shunned lepers and faithful remnants and all those who would repent of their sin and turn to him in faith. Because my God is the Lord and he saves by his grace through faith in his son. As we sang just a few minutes ago, he is the same God. It's the way he did things then. It's the way he does things now. Why don't you bow your head? Let's reflect together for just a few minutes. Is there somewhere in your life this morning where you just need to be reminded that your God is the Lord? A place in your life that feels out of control and you just need to be reminded that he is in control. A place where you feel powerless, you just need to be reminded that he's powerful. place where your heart runs to anxiety and to fear and you just need to be reminded to run to him if so would you just confess that ask for his help in that if not then praise him for who he is that the God is your God Is there a place in your life this morning where you just need to trust that your God saves? Maybe in your own life for the first time, you've been trying to do things your way. You've been trying to save yourself. You just need to be reminded that salvation is of the Lord. And you just need to lay that stuff down. And ask for God to save you based not on your goodness and what you've done, but based on his son and what he's done. Maybe someone you love who's close to you but far from God. And you just need to be reminded that God can save. And you need to plead with him to save them. Maybe a situation you're in and you know it. it, Man, you've just made some mistakes and you've backed yourself into a corner and you don't see a way out. But God can save you from that. Sometimes there's no reason to overcomplicate these things. We just need our hearts to be reminded that Yahweh 
is the Lord. And that he is mighty to save. Father, would you fill our hearts this morning and our minds with the truth of who you are. That like Elijah and Elisha, our lives might be a testimony to who you are and to the saving power of your goodness. He's come to us through the work of your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.